The reading this morning can be found on page 2 of the Bible and we're starting from verse 4 in chapter 2. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now no rush shrub had yet appeared on the earth and no plant had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is the Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of Ashur, and the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. All right. Good morning, everyone. Keep your Bibles open in front of you for me. And let's get going. This is a painting by Nathan Campbell titled Fruit and Flowers. It has the honour of being the only work of art of his to be displayed on a wall. Uh, It currently is on display at his grandparents' house. Now you'll notice not only is it on a wall, but it's also in a frame. And it's got great longevity. I think it's been up there for about 20 years. 
This is a painting by Claude Monet titled Water Lily Pond. It has the honour of having been sold at auction for $91 million. Bit of an upgrade from my grand's wall. Now, as you can likely tell, I am not much of an artist, but I have heard of Claude Monet. And one of the things that Monet is most famous for uh, is painting gardens. Actually, it was mostly his own garden that he loved to paint, and he certainly painted his backyard a whole lot. This is Lilies in Bloom. That went at auction for $84 million. This one's just called Water Lilies, but it only went for $44 million. A poor effort. But his garden has made quite a bit of money, hasn't it? And because of that, it's probably one of the most famous gardens in the world. You know, Monet truly loved his garden. He spent thousands upon thousands of dollars on it. He took great pride in expanding it and improving it. Here is him uh, with a mate on the famous Japanese bridge that he had built across his lily pond. Uh, and here is one of his many impressions of it. The garden held such a a pride of place in Monet's heart. He was described as, as once having said that the garden was his greatest ever masterpiece. How about that? At its height, there were six full-time gardeners who were employed to tend to his garden, and one of the very special jobs that they had each and every morning was to paddle a boat out into the pond and to dust each of the lilies before Monet sat down to paint them. This was no ordinary garden. This Sunday marks the beginning of Advent in the church calendar. It's also the start of this short little series that we're going to be doing. It's going to run us up to Christmas. Advent means coming, and so it's a word we use to associate with the coming of our Lord Jesus. With all the waiting and all the expectation, all the hope that comes when our world celebrates His birth. As we turn our eyes toward Christmas over the next few Sundays, we are going to be taking a sweeping view across the biblical landscape and pausing at all the places where God has dwelt among his people. We'll take a look at the temple next week. We'll take a look at our hearts, at the new Jerusalem that's to come. And the climax, of course, is going to be Christmas, God coming among us in the flesh. But before we get to all that, we're kicking the series off today by going right back to the very beginning, to the garden that, like Monet's, was anything but ordinary. Keep your Bibles open to Genesis chapter 2. If you've lost the page, do not worry. Open it to the start and then just turn one page and you'll be sorted. Now, sometimes when we come to these, these opening chapters of the Bible, you know, it's easy to get bogged down in questions of science and history. Is this a literal photograph of exactly how God did it or is it perhaps more a poetic symbol of the historical reality. You know, I think it's going to be helpful for us, at least today, to put those questions aside for a moment because I want us to go for a stroll through this garden, to pay attention to the details as we see them, to appreciate the picture as it's painted for us and so to better grasp what it actually means for us to be among the Creator in this garden. I think there's two big things for us to notice as we take this stroll today through the garden. The first one is that the closeness that existed between us and God was very much intended. And that this closeness was also delightful. Intended 
and delightful. Verse 4, it's kind of like the heading of our story today, uh, which then proper begins in verse 5, where we read something quite strange, actually. What does it say? Now, no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up. That's strange. That's a strange problem to have, don't you think, for, for the creator of all things. No one to work the ground. That's the reason, right? There's no water, but there's also no one to work the ground. Is that a design flaw? What's going on? In verse 9, a little later on in, in today's passage, we'll see God actually can just straight up make all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, and yet here at the outset... It's like he's designed his creation with some kind of deficiency. In order for there to be growth, you see, God has made it so that it needs someone to work it. That's very interesting. In the very beginning, God set things up whereby humanity, you and I, we were necessary. We were necessary for his creation, not because God couldn't do it without us, but because he wanted to do it with us. In verse 6, if we continue on, God solves the problem, the first problem, he waters the earth. And then in verse 7, he, he solves that second problem, he creates a gardener, someone to work the ground. What a description verse 7 is as well. The fashion in which he chooses to create this gardener and what that says about God's intention. We're told that he formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. That's an incredible level of intimacy, isn't it, when you think about it? The word form that's used there in Hebrew means, it's kind of the same word they use for a potter who is molding their clay. So in a sense, it's like this first man is being handmade by God. How crazy is that? If it was an item in a hipster cafe, right, it would be described on the menu as artisan or bespoke, whatever that means. The man is skillfully formed by God's own hands, but then even more than that, we're told that this man's very first breath is not even his own, it's God's. It's second hand, vintage. Whoever said God wasn't a trendsetter? By God's own hand and by God's own breath, humanity came into being. You know, I was reflecting on that this week, and I couldn't help but be struck by just how intimate a picture that is there in verse 7. For God to stoop down and to gather the dust, and then to breathe life into it. Like, he could have, he could have done it any number of ways, but in, instead God chose to get incredibly close, didn't he? And I don't know how that makes you feel, but it makes me want to be with a God like that. It makes me want to feel what that kind of closeness would have been like. And it reveals to us that this is a God who wants us around. He's interested in a genuine relationship, not because he's lonely, but because he's loving. He wants to be close to us. That's actually what we were created for. And deep down, I think that's actually what we long for as well, even if sometimes we don't realize it. Not only is this intimacy very much intentional, but it's actually clear throughout the story that it's a closeness that's also 
delightful. Now, I'm guessing you're probably like me, and when you hear the Garden of Eden, you probably think of a Club Med kind of situation, right? As if this garden is some kind of remote, secluded place of relaxation, like tropical resort meets Western Plains Zoo, right? I kind of blame uh, every kid's Bible ever for the way that it describes it, right? It's all waterfalls and giraffes and piles of fruit and and Adam and Eve are kind of there swanning about, working on their suntan. But if we're paying attention to the text as it comes to us in Genesis 2, we'll actually see this garden is way more than just a perfect location to spend a long weekend. For instance, notice there in verse 8, we find out that God is the one who plants this garden and then he actually places us in there. In other words, we're not native to this garden. Did you realize that? We were created outside of it and then placed into it. And it's really important, I think, because it makes this garden an undeserved gift from the Creator, rather than it being something that we own outright. It's something that's been given to us. And it reveals that this is a God who's all about showing grace right from the very beginning. In just the second chapter of the Bible, here's one about grace. And then notice there in verse 9, the trees God fills this garden with, we're told they're pleasing to the eye and they're, they're good for food. It didn't need to be like that. But again, out of God's amazing grace and generosity, crafts this guy a garden that we're told is a feast for the senses. And you can imagine God's delight, right, as he gets to, to take this man through his garden for the first time. And the delight that this man would have had, the wide-eyed delight as he gazes on its beauty for the first time, as he tastes of its sweetness, as he breathes in its fragrances and explores all of its mysteries. How wonderful and amazing that first walk must have been. I don't know about you, but I've always thought the garden was was some kind of secret, hidden garden. A paradise just for Adam and Eve to be there and to enjoy. But that's not at all how the story describes it. We're actually told this garden's the epicenter of the world. The epicenter of the world. It's what we see there in verses 10 to 14, where the, the, the four great rivers are described for us. You'll notice each one of them flows from Eden, it says there in verse 10. And what do they do from there? Well, they flow to the rest of the world. They carry the garden's life and abundance and blessing to every corner of the globe. Because you see, here in this garden is actually where it's all happening. God and humanity are together, ruling together over this new creation. So the Garden of Eden is actually the headquarters to the whole world. It's not hidden away. It's right at the very center way more than Club Med meets Western Plains Zoo. Then over the next few verses, we actually get to find out why God has placed us in this garden. Verse 15 tells us that the man had been put there to work the garden and take care of it. But the word there for put, in Hebrew, it actually means rested. God rested the man in this garden. So he could work it, 
And that might sound a little bit odd to our ears, right? What kind of rest could this actually be if God's there going, you know, I want you to work in my garden for me? How do those things fit together? But of course, that could flip the question on us. I mean, what, what does it say about the nature of our work, right? The toll it takes, the stress it makes, the pain it brings, the exhaustion that it leaves. What does it say about our work that we can't even possibly fathom how it fits into the context of God's rest. Because you see, in this garden, with God dwelling in harmony with humanity, work in this garden was actually pure delight. And if it's hard for you to imagine how that can possibly be the case, I think we actually see it in verse, verse 15 and on, as we, we see an example of the very first task God gives to this new gardener, the naming of the animals. Now, love them or hate them, Coldplay is one of the biggest bands in the world. It's possible to argue with that. They've sold over 100 million records. They regularly sell out stadiums all across the world. And I like their music, but I love seeing them live. They're incredible. If you've, if you've ever been to a concert, a Coldplay concert, you'll know what I'm talking about. It's pretty spectacular. Now, one time they were playing a show in Munich, and Chris Martin, the lead singer, he, uh, he spotted a fan's sign out in the crowd asking to come and play one of his songs for him. Incredibly, in that very moment, Martin actually invited this guy up onto the stage, sat him in front of the piano, and here's what happened next. Okay, all right, let's try it, man. This is called Evergo. This is a, a German British Union. Let's go. Let's keep it together in Europe, all right? something incredibly moving about that picture, don't you think? Like, can you imagine how special that moment would have been for the fan to have been brought up onto the stage like that? You know, here's Chris Martin, creative genius, inviting someone in to enjoy his creation with him. And it must have been a real moment for, for Chris Martin as well, right, to hear one of his fans playing his own song back to him. And the whole time, there's tens of thousands of people watching on in the crowd, taking delight at what is unfolding. That moment in a Coldplay concert is just a mere shadow of the delightful work we see taking place here in God's garden. As the Creator invites us in to share and delight in His good creation with Him. Just take a look at the way the text puts it there in the middle of verse 19. It's incredible. He, it says, as in God, brought them to the man, the animals, to see what he would name them. This is the first real assignment that, that God's given to us, but he's not like some of the bosses we know. 
have it back to me by Monday, right? In this garden, God sticks around. Why? Well, because he wants to watch the man work to see what he's going to name each of the animals. He's delighting in the man's work just as the man is delighting in God's creation. And like a song in a stadium, the man goes about his task naming each of these animals and it's like all the creation is there watching on in delight. That, friends, is a glimpse for all of us about what our work on this earth should look like, right? What the work of our hands was meant to be, responsive and satisfying, fruitful and rewarding. Things that do what we want them to do when we want them to do them. (laughs) Seeing and appreciating the impact that we've made. Work that brings us a deep satisfaction, not just when we finished it, but while we're actually doing it. Work that is delightful rather than exhausting. That drives us to rejoice rather than complain. That is the work we were made for. And it's the way work once was when God dwelt among us. All of it flowing from the intentional and delightful closeness that we shared with him. It's a beautiful picture. For all the glory and the beauty of Monet's garden, for all the masterpieces it was able to inspire in him, after his death in 1926, it Tragically, the garden fell into disrepair. Overgrown, full of weeds, a disturbing amount of dust on the lilies. There was no longer any gardeners to tend to it and it was no longer inspiring any masterpieces. And you know, knowing its former glory, I think makes seeing the deterioration all the more tragic, right? So too with God's garden. The beauty and the delight that we see here in the pages of Genesis 2, it sits in complete contrast, doesn't it, to the tragedy that unfolds in just the very next chapter. The perfect harmony and closeness that we'd enjoyed with God in an instant turns to chaos. Adam and Eve choose to take their gardening advice not from the creator of the garden, but from a creature It was their first and fatal step away from closeness with God. Rather than remain dependent on Him, rather than ruling on His behalf, what do they do? They go and start ruling on their own. And we've been doing it ever since, haven't we? The crack that had formed between God and humanity as we follow the story through, it then widens, doesn't it, into a channel as chapter 3 continues. Verse 8 tells us that after they've eaten the forbidden fruit, the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. What did they do? They hid from him among the trees of the garden. They hid from him. The trees God had created for humanity to delight in are now being used by the man and woman to separate themselves from the creator. They no longer wanted to be in his presence And so these trees from God's own garden become in some sense the very first veil, the very first curtain that gets put up between us and God. And that was our doing. That was our desire to hide. 
and the crack that became a channel then becomes a giant chasm between us and God as God makes this new separation a permanent one. The man and the woman are driven from the garden and the closeness and the delight they once enjoyed with God is now lost. You know, in some ways, our exile from the garden is kind of like those tragic moments in life when we're forced to farewell someone that we love, particularly when that someone is young. I mean, every death is tragic, but when, when it's someone young, you know, we don't just lose who they were, we also lose who they could have been, don't we? Who they were shaping up to become. And it makes the loss all the more tragic. In that tragic day when we were driven from God's garden, there was so much lost potential, the loss of what could have been, the loss of what this place, our world, was supposed to be like, what our lives would be like had we not separated ourselves from the author of life. Why did we do that? Why do we still do it? Since that day, we've actually been on a search, trying to get back in, chasing paradise, haven't we? That place of stability and security and abundance, that place where every need is fully met, that place where we're free of fear and worry and doubt, the place without grief to overcome us, without shame we've got to hide ourselves from. Whoever you are, that's the place we want to be, isn't it? And our world is so good. It's perfected the art of manufacturing Eden, hasn't it? We've punched out thousands of them. Work, wealth, success, popularity, sex, status, property, pleasure, travel, study, family, each one of them holding out to us the promise of paradise. But the truth is every single one of those Edens is just a, they're just a cheap plastic knockoff. None of them are the real deal. None are capable of actually taking us back there. After 40 years of disrepair, Monet's garden was actually restored. You can go and visit it if you want. This year it's going to have over 600,000 people visit. There's now 10 full-time gardeners who are employed to tend the garden. And yet, none of them dust the lilies. Why? Well, because Monet no longer sits beside the pond ready to paint. So the garden's beauty might have been restored, and yet without the master himself gracing it with his presence, the garden's always going to lack what made it so special in the first place. Without Monet there, it's just a pretty garden. So too when it comes to all these plastic Edens that we manufacture for ourselves, We can't recapture what we once had because the truth is, the greatness of the garden didn't reside with the wonder of the waterfalls or the sweetness of the fruit or the exotic animals that filled it. The greatness of the garden was simply the fact that God was there. All the goodness and the blessing and the abundance was just overflowing out of God's presence. God's presence. That's why we can't just go and simply get it back on our own. We can't just manufacture it ourselves. 
And in fact, the problem was so serious, it would actually take God himself coming down to us, wouldn't it? Being born in the flesh as the son. And it would involve his own journey to it, to a different garden, the Garden of Gethsemane, and execution on a Roman cross. On that cross, the son was spiritually separated from the father. His face turned away from the son in judgment. The separation that was rightly ours since the fall, that day it became his. So that humanity might have the chance to know that closeness with God again. Isn't that amazing? I'm not much of an artist. But I have heard of Claude Monet. And I can also appreciate the beautiful picture that's painted here for us by Genesis chapter 2 of the remarkable closeness we once shared with God. You know, walking through this garden this week has made me grieve. Grieve for humanity, for what we once had before we walked away, before I walked away. But the garden's also deepened my love for a God who's, who's been good at giving gifts since the very beginning. Giving good gifts. Most of all, it's actually left me longing for the incredible closeness we see on these pages and for the day when this remarkable intimacy is fully restored. I wonder what impression walking through God's garden has left on you today. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for the story of Genesis chapter 2 and for the amazing picture it paints for us of the way it once was. Lord, we might respond in all sorts of ways as we have encountered your word this morning, but we pray most of all that we would gaze on your glory and on your goodness and on your generosity and that we might long to, to be close to you again like we once were. Thank you for your son Jesus, for his sacrifice, for his death and resurrection on a cross, so that, Lord, we might be reunited with you, and that one day, one day soon, we pray, Lord, we might be face to face with you once more. Amen.